Good morning. Uh, my name is Kiwam Lee, and um, I've been here a few times before with you, and uh, so glad that I can be with you here again. Um, I know that uh, Norman's away for, uh, I think, a fairly good reason today, and uh, so um, I'm glad that I can be sharing this time with you in his place. Um, apologies earlier when I didn't have the mic on, and uh, now I know. Uh, so uh, hopefully everybody can hear, both here and at, uh, at home. Um, uh, I'm going to... Uh, uh, lead us today in a sermon entitled The Way Home, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 13, uh, verses 36 to uh, chapter 14, verse 7. So uh, we'll be reading that uh, together um, from the Gospel of John. I'll be uh, reading from um, the ESV. And it says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of God. Um, Growing up as a missionary kid in a country where my family moved to when I was 10 years old, uh, without knowing the language and where everything was brand new, And then traveling by myself to the States, another brand new country and culture, to begin life as an international student, the idea of home was always something that was um, emotionally fraught for me. Where is home? Is it in Korea where I was born? Is it in Kenya where I was raised? Is it in U.S. where I've spent all of my adult life, uh, married and raised two sons uh, with my wife, Christy? Um, So a dilemma for a third culture kid like me is that on the one hand, I can um, relatively easily make myself at home um, anywhere, in any culture. Uh, And a friend of mine once called me culturally elastic. Uh, But on the other hand, nowhere feels like home. Um, I I can't point to one place and say, that's where I belong. That's the place that shapes me, uh, who I am, and how I show up in this world. And so what Jesus is addressing here in this passage has to do with this idea that has a powerful pull on all of our hearts, no matter where we come from or whatever our background is. And it's the idea of of home. Today's text falls in the middle of this farewell discourse that Jesus has with his disciples. And it's uh, several chapters long between the Last Supper and his betrayal. And Jesus has been saying for a while now in the Gospel of John, in a little while I'm going away. And when he says it here again, Peter finally asks him, you keep on saying that, where are you going? 
Uh, and that opens up this section. Jesus has some memorable lines here, and uh, some of you might have, um, you know, had uh, memory has these as uh, memory verses uh, as you were growing up in the church. Um, he says, "In my Father's house there are many rooms," and he says, "I'm going to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you might also abide." When another disciple, Thomas, says to him, we don't know where you're going or the way to get there, Jesus responds with another one of those I am statements uh, that are so characteristic in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a lot to unpack here for us. So first, let's talk about the home that was lost. Um, you know, my teenage sons and I sometimes talk about things that give them a feeling of nostalgia. Uh, for example, uh, they used to watch Toy Story, the movie, um, on repeat uh, when they were little kids. And uh, some of you might have the same experience. And uh, now, as a teenager, when they happen to watch them again, they talk about how they get that feeling. And I know what they mean. Uh, it's sort of this achy, happy, sad feeling that you get, uh, remembering a gauzy time of innocence and security, happiness that we don't have access to now because we're too grown up. Um, and I believe this feeling of nostalgia is tied to a yearning and longing that has been somehow wired deep into our hearts. We have embedded in our unconscious a memory of a home that we lost a long time ago. In Ecclesiastes, the writer says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Eternity in human hearts. And I think a way to think about that is that uh, we possess a memory of a primordial state where we used to enjoy a life of peace with God and we now live with a longing for it. You know, different people have said this, uh, you know, we kind of described this. Uh, Calvin talked about this as that we all have a, a sense of the divine in our hearts. And, um, you know, various people have talked about it in different ways. But, um, you know, I think it's uh, in many ways, it's sort of like we can be, we can describe it as a, as a longing for home. Um, it's like we're homing pigeons in this life, you know, and there's an unspoken drive for us within us to get, get back home. In the beginning of the Bible, we, we have a description of what that home is like. Um, and uh, we find a garden. And we find the first family living in the garden. A man, a woman, and God. And they are living together. Adam and Eve, under God's parental care, start working at creation and are about to grow and flourish to their potential. And amazingly, it says that they used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine going for an evening walk with God as a part of your regular routine? <laughs> hey kids, God's coming over for dinner, and afterwards we're going to, to go for a walk in the Wasaikon with him. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a little bit mind-boggling, but that's the picture that's being drawn of a home that's shot through with abundance, with love, contentment, and glory. Whichever direction that you look at, it's the home that God prepared for us to live our days with Him. In fact, Eden is presented as a microcosm of creation itself, which is portrayed as a home that God prepared for humanity to grow and to flourish and live all, all of our days uh, in that place, enjoying abundant life forever with God. But the Bible continues the story. 
And as we all know, there's a disaster. Adam and Eve disobey God, and they betray their relationship with Him, and now they need to leave their home. The, Genesis, the end of Genesis 3 um, has angels guarding the way back to the garden with flaming swords. The, the good home that God prepared for us has now been lost to us. And the world that Adam and Eve are exiled to is a hard place. It's a cruel place, full of sadness and violence and sin. Brother murders brother. Tyrants rise up and put other people under their thumbs. We hurt each other and we reject the good life under God's rule. It's a world that's breaking down and breaking apart, ruled by sin and death. And as we look around the world, you know, this picture rings true, doesn't it? When we hear the news of um, natural disasters happening, uh, or, or happening in our world, uh, claiming unimaginable number of lives, when we experience fear, um, when we see the evening news and uh, we hear the news about violence um, uh, that, that uh, seemingly that uh, society is gripped in, and when we feel righteous anger when society refuses to make the changes that it needs to correct an injustice, we shouldn't just say, well, that's just the way that things are. Uh, that's just the way that the world is. We should instead say, that is not the way that it's supposed to be. Um, in other words, we are experiencing the world as exiles who are living far from home. But the Bible also preserves the hope of a future deliverance, does it not? That God will yet be faithful and save his people and restore them to their home. When the Israelites are delivered from a life of slavery in Egypt, when they're out in the wilderness, God instructs them to build a tabernacle. And uh, the tabernacle is a special tent um, in the middle of the Israelite camp that moves with them all of the years that they're out in the wilderness, where the presence of God is going to dwell with them. Um, and, um, you know, some of you, you had the experience of uh, reading, reading through the Bible uh, in its entirety. And uh, many, of, many times, uh, often, you know, especially when you're new at this, um, uh, you come uh, to, you know, you're doing well, and then uh, in the first part of uh, Exodus, uh, oh, amazing, great, exciting stories, um, and then you come to the second part of Exodus, and uh, you start to tune out, <laughs> because uh, you're not paying attention to the long, detailed descriptions of the tabernacle. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, you, if you make, make through that, and then Leviticus will finish you off, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, but, but uh, if you're paying attention through that description, why is this even here? Uh, you start to realize that the tabernacle is designed to recall the Garden of Eden. There is a candle stand, the menorah, which represents the tree of life. There are the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, recalling the angels guarding the way back to the garden. There are the precious stones in the garments of the priests, who are assigned to do priestly duties in the tabernacle, and these are the same precious stones that are found in the Garden of Eden. In other words, the tabernacle is a representation of the home that we have lost. And what's really significant about, that, about the tabernacle is that the presence of God dwells there. The Israelites, even though they don't have a home, even though they're living in tents, even if they're wandering around in the wilderness, God, they could say, God lived among them. God has an address with us, right? And uh, their representative, Moses, could go into the tabernacle to meet face-to-face -face with the living God, just like Adam and Eve could in the garden. So the story of the Bible continues. 
and the people enter the promised land, and the tabernacle becomes a temple, and it seems like at last they have a home, and they regain the paradise that they've lost. But it was not to be. Just like Adam and Eve were unfaithful, the people of Israel were unfaithful. And in the end, it culminates in judgment and exile. The Israelites are carried off from their homes as prisoners of war to Assyria and to Babylon. The city of God is left devastated and desolate. The temple is demolished and left in ruins. The home that God's people could have had, where they might have lived in the presence and in the blessing of God, is lost all over again. The exiles do return, and they do rebuild the nation, but it would not be the same. When the temple is rebuilt, there are people who cheer, but there are also people who weep, because the new temple could not be compared to the splendor of the original. Moreover, the homeland is always under the threat of various empires. Uh, besides Babylon and Persia and Assyria, between Testaments, uh, the Seleucid Empire of Alexander the Great rolls through, and then the Roman Empire marches in, and they occupy the land. Is this truly home if somebody else is here in charge? So the people hold on to the long-nurtured hope for the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, who would come and deliver the people from bondage, defeat and turn away these other kingdoms, and establish God's rule. They wait for the Messiah, who would restore God's people finally, to their home. And that's the backdrop. It's into this kind of a world that Jesus comes, and that's how you need to understand him when he says, I am going to my Father to prepare a place for you. He is recalling about the long-lost home of the people's hopes and dreams. He's talking about the garden that Adam and Eve were exiled from. He's talking about a return to the place where we walk with God in the cool of the day. He's talking about the fulfillment of all of our yearnings and longings to end long last, be home and be whole. It's an astounding claim. Like all of the other claims that Jesus has been making throughout the Gospel of John, and the disciples have a hard time understanding him. One, because his claim is uh, that he is the one that all of this has been building up to. But two, they also have a hard time because of what he says about the way to get home. And that's the second thing to talk about. The way home. Peter has this exchange with Jesus that shows what a rough time the disciples are having, making sense of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going away in a little while, and where I'm going, you can't follow uh, now, but you will later. And Peter replies, why not now, Jesus? I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And this is when Jesus prophesies uh, about uh, Peter's denial. Will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? You have no idea how unprepared you are to take the road that I'm about to take. But you are about to find out. Uh, you know, re um, read through any of the Gospels, and you find that there's a fundamental disconnect between what the disciples expect of the Messiah and what Jesus understands as his mission as a Messiah. Right? The disciples, like the people around them, were waiting for a Messiah who would come conquering, who would come defeating the enemy, and who would come restoring the glory of God to his people and establish God's rule as a triumphant king. But Jesus confounds the disciples repeatedly. Whenever he does something amazing and people want to make him king by force, he 
runs off somewhere and hides from them. <laughs> it's a terrible political strategy, isn't it? Uh, you know, when they're on their way to Jerusalem, and the disciples get ahead of themselves, and they start arguing about who's going to sit at his right hand, and who's going to sit at his left, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be betrayed, and be handed over to be tried and be killed. Talk about a downer. <laughs> uh, and then Jesus looks at them and says, and you too. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The disciples are thinking the way to get, to, get, to get home is the way of triumph. It's the way of victory. But instead, here comes Jesus, and he's saying that the way home is the way of the cross. Jesus' way back home is the way of sacrifice for the sake of the other. The way of love for neighbor and love for God that leads to faithful obedience in spite of cost to self. The way home is Jesus saying, Father, if it is at all possible, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In a little while, Jesus says, I will take the way of the cross. That's what it takes to prepare a place for you in the Father's house and remove the flaming swords guarding the way home. I need to come under the sword and clear the way for you. Once I prepare a place for you, I will return, take you on the way to the cross yourself so that you too can find your way back home. Now, this is precisely the kind of talk that the disciples do not want to hear. That's, there's a reason why the disciples repeatedly don't understand Jesus, why they're puzzled by Jesus, why they're confused by Jesus. It's not because they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Um, it's because they don't like what Jesus is saying. It's because what they're hearing is too much. The way home that Jesus is proposing is too costly. This is not what they signed up for. They are willfully misunderstanding Jesus, you see. Later, Jesus says, You will see me resurrected and receive the Holy Spirit, and you will understand. But right now, the disciples do not. I think... Um, the disciples are a stand-in for us and our own struggle with God. We long to get back home. We yearn for the glory. We yearn for the healing and the belonging. We hunger for the comfort and the security of being home at last. But all of the ways that we devise for ourselves to try to get there end up being dead ends. Why? Because they're not the way of Jesus. Right? The same way that Adam and Eve sought to gain wisdom and life, but apart from God's direction, and instead got death. We try and try to seek home our way, apart from the way of Jesus, and we end up lost and far from home. Look at what Thomas says to Jesus. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus makes this uh, trifecta I am statement. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you're going to find your way back home, okay, you need a map that will show you the truth about the lay of the land. If you're going to find your way back home, you will need the right kind of provisions for the journey that you will sustain your life. If you're going to find your way back home, you need a guide who knows the way because he's already gone that way and can take you through all of the ups and downs, all of the dangers and the curves and the bends in the road, all of the choices of knowing what fork in the road to take and when. Jesus says that he is all of that and more. There will come times when we will doubt and our strength will run low 
But if you stick with him and persevere in following him, he will be faithful to the end to take you home to your resting place with the Father. Many of us, we, right now, we could be struggling with this question, question marks about the future. And you could, might be crying out to the Lord, what road do you want me to take? Can you hear Jesus telling you, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I, I wonder how uh, we living in America in 2023 think about the idea of home, what pictures we use to construct our idea of home. And I think about the IKEA catalog. <laughs> uh, many of us have um, those rolling around in our homes uh, somewhere in the house, maybe several years worth. Um, and uh, whenever I think about the IKEA catalog, I think about the movie Fight Club. Uh, it's just that's the way that my brain works. Uh, it's, it's Fight Club is one of those movies um, that uh, serve as a marker for my generation, uh, Generation X. Um, uh, and um, you know, it came out uh, many, many years ago. But um, in, in the movie, um, the actor Ed Norton plays a character who is living the typical company dude life. Um, he's working a job he does not believe in that takes him everywhere, so he's nowhere in particular. He goes through his days numb and sleepwalking through life, but he can buy things. And what's home, according to the, go- uh, according to the gospel of consumerism, is a place where you can buy, you can, you can put the stuff that you buy to look like, say, an IKEA catalog. Uh, and there's one, one scene in the movie when the camera pans over his apartment and over each piece of furniture, a label pops up uh, uh, with a Swedish-sounding name and a price tag, uh, like an IKEA catalog. And a home that looks shiny on the surface, but underneath is hollow and empty. And it's a portrait of a paradise brought to you by consumerism. Um, and the, the movie keeps on going. And, you know, as it unfolds, it's really a sharp commentary on the modern consumer society. And um, uh, there are these disenchanted young men who are adrift and lost in this consumer society, yearning to belong to something and to feel something, and they find each other and form a club that uh, starts out with, um, you know, them just beating each other, beating themselves up, uh, uh, but then develops into causing mischief and mayhem. At one point, uh, there's a character played by Brad Pitt, uh, gives the Fight Club a, an actual sermon. <laughs> and he's railing against the consumerist society and system that's turned them into docile consumers and mindless worker bots. And he says, you're not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You're not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You're not your khakis. And he's rail- rallying lost young men with father issues. Uh, when one of the characters is asked um, who they'd like to fight with the most, he says, my old man. Phrased differently, we are lost and alienated from our home, and consumerism's not helped us to get home, and we are mad about it. Like modern, many uh, modern works of art, Fight Club gives us a searing analysis of modern life, but fails to provide a solution. The Fight Club guys, rejecting mindlessly going along with consumer society, end up just as lost, if not more. Their answer is, assert your true wild individual self and tear down the system that's made you into a sheep. But this gives them a temporary sense of freedom, but in the end, it gets them nowhere. They're still just as cut off from home, still in exile, stuck in a dystopian ruin they themselves created. And the way of Jesus is different. 
is neither mindless trust in consumerism nor in the violent rejection of it. Rather, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, following in the footsteps of the Savior who gave his life, his all, for us. What the Lord wants from his church is to be a community who truly is walking in the way of the cross. That's how the world will know that the way home is real. When the community that's on the way of Jesus serves and loves and forgives sacrificially. This is the way of the cross, right? When the church gives itself to, for the sake of those who are the most vulnerable. <laughs> and uh, when the church doesn't spend all of its time trying to be as influential and privileged as possible like every other special interest group, but instead lives to make spaces of hospitality and forgiveness and mercy to the stranger, to the forgotten, and the down and out, as well as to each other. It becomes a signpost pointing the way back home. That's why Paul and Peter say, we, the church, are now the temple. The followers of Jesus, when they come together to go the way of Jesus, become the home prepared by God in this world where the world can see God and meet with God. Jesus is here to lead the way when we feel that we are floundering, when we've lost our way. He's here to lead us, full of grace and truth. We're not lost because Jesus is with us and He is faithful. He has gone before us and He knows how to lead us. If we walk with Him on the way of the cross, he will grant you a real taste of home in the here and now. Everything on the side of, 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 uh, of his return is going to be partial, and everything will have a tinge of sadness and of disappointment, but the joy of finally being home, prepared by the love of Jesus, can be had today, now, for real. We welcome it from a distance. So we serve and love and live for the Lord with future joy now. Although we live as exiles now, we're also home now because Jesus isn't far off somewhere in the distant heaven, but he's walking with us on the road home right here, right now. There's an amazing story that is told in the book, The Long Walk Home, by an author, uh, Slavomir Ravich. Uh, it was made into a movie called The Way Back uh, about 10 years ago. So, and the story is so amazing, in fact, that a number of people doubt it, that it's a true story. Um, it's a story of a Polish prisoner of a Siberian gulag who escaped with a, a small group back in 1941. And their goal, the small group's goal, was to reach the British-ruled India and gain freedom. They would have to walk a whole year across the Siberian tundra, the great Gobi Desert in China, and the Himalayas, some of the most unforgiving terrain on earth. When it was all said and done, they covered 4,000 miles on foot. And you can see why some people would think this could not possibly be true, because who could ever do this? It's not humanly possible. Now, that walk pales in comparison to the cosmic journey that the sun took all the way from the arms of the Father into our world in exile, even to the cross and the grave. Nor does it compare to the journey that the Son took 
out of the grave to ascend to the right hand of the Father, where He sent His Spirit on His people. Nor does it compare so to the final journey uh, that He will take one day to bring the city of New Jerusalem, which is the finaling, final flowering of the Garden of Eden from heaven to earth. On that day, it will be said, at last, the dwelling of God is with men and women. At last, we'll be all the way home. Jesus has taken this long walk for you. You can join Him and take this walk with Him too, no matter how long that it might seem sometimes. He is the way home. He is our home. Friends, today, let's rest in Him. Let's dwell with Him. Let's walk with Him. Let's pray. Jesus, you know about the long walk that it takes through life. So, Lord, we pray that we might join you on the way of the cross. That, Lord, that we would be comforted, that we would be encouraged, that you know the way home, that you are the way home, that you are our home. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you on the way of the cross. And help us, Lord, to welcome you, welcome our home, even now, from a distance, but also to be had and experienced and tasted today. So, Lord, won't you encourage your church uh, to be faithful to you today? In Jesus' name we pray.